Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. No to the Canadians. No to the Americans. You are monsters. You don't have solutions. You are chaos. You are behind the gangsterization of crime. You are giving arms to our brothers and those who are in underprivileged neighborhoods. Protests are continuing in Haiti, demanding the resignation of the U.S.-backed Haitian Prime Minister Ariel Henry and against the deployment of international troops to Haiti. We'll speak to Gerline Joseph of the Haitian Bridge Alliance about the crisis in Haiti and look at how the U.S. is treating asylum seekers from Haiti and Venezuela. Then President Biden promises to enshrine abortion rights into federal law if Democrats keep control of Congress with the midterm elections less than three weeks away. Here's the promise I make to you and the American people. The first bill that I will send to the Congress will be to codify Roe v. Wade. We'll speak with Congress member Cori Bush. She faces re-election this November, just wrapped up a row of the vote, reproductive freedom tour across Missouri, where abortion was banned after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. We'll talk in depth about her new memoir, The Forerunner, a story of pain and perseverance in America. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Aid groups are again sounding the alarm over the worsening humanitarian disaster in Somalia, which is facing famine on a scale not seen in half a century. One child's hospitalized for malnutrition every minute according to UNICEF. The U.N. says over $2 billion in aid is needed to help fight the catastrophic effects of the ongoing drought, as the region appears to be in the throes of its fifth consecutive failed rainy season. Situation spurred a mass displacement crisis. This is Fahad Hussein, a displaced Somali mother and street vendor. I had fled from drought from Bulamarer town of Lower Shebel region. I have five children. I had seven children. Two died while they were babies because of thirst and hunger of the drought. And we fled from locusts and wars. Now we are in these IDP camps and still need support. In Ukraine, Russia is warning the battle for Kherson is imminent and says it will evacuate some 60,000 people in the coming days. Ukrainian forces have recently driven back Russian fighters in the occupied city. Elsewhere, Russian strikes have cut power to over a 1,000 towns and villages across Ukraine as residents face the prospect of a winter without heat. The U.N. Security Council is set to discuss today the issue of Iranian drones being used in Moscow's assault on Ukraine. Iran has recently agreed to provide Russia with more drones and surface-to-surface missiles. Meanwhile, Lockheed Martin says it will up its production of HIMARS long-range rocket artillery systems, which the U.S. has been providing to Ukraine. 
On Wednesday, officials in Denmark confirmed powerful explosions caused the Nord Stream 1 and 2 gas pipelines to leak in the Baltic Sea last month, though did not specify the origin of the blasts. Here in the United States, President Biden's announcing the release of another 15 million barrels of fuel from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. The move seeks to ease prices at the gas pump amidst the ongoing war and three weeks ahead of the midterm elections. On Tuesday, President Biden vowed to enshrine access to abortion into law if Democrats expand their narrow majorities in Congress in the upcoming midterm elections. Here's the promise I make to you and the American people. The first bill that I will send to the Congress will be to codify Roe v. Wade. And when Congress passes it, I'll sign it in January, 50 years after Roe was first decided the law of the land. President Biden made the remarks yesterday at a Democratic National Committee event in Washington, D.C. As many Democratic candidates hope to harness public outrage over the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade, Senator Bernie Sanders has warned Democrats against focusing solely on abortion rights while neglecting to address the economy, health care and inequality. In Florida, Republican Senator Marco Rubio and Democratic challenger Congressmember Val Demings faced off in their only debate ahead of November's election. The candidates sparred over abortion, voting rights, foreign policy and guns, with Demings going after Rubio for his inaction on gun control. How long will you watch people being gunned down in first grade, fourth grade, high school, college, church, synagogue, a grocery store, a movie theater, a mall and a nightclub Congresswoman. and do nothing? In Florida, the Tampa Bay Times has obtained video showing police officers arresting people for voting. In 2018, Florida overwhelmingly voted in favor of a ballot measure allowing formerly incarcerated people with past felony convictions to cast ballots. But the law excludes residents who are convicted of murder or felony sex offenses. The arrested individuals say they were encouraged to vote by Florida officials and were not made aware of this exclusion, which is not stated on voter registration forms. This is Tampa resident Tony Patterson and his arresting officer as captured on a police body cam. Apparently, I, I guess you have a warrant. For what? I'm not it's sure. For voter stuff, man. For voters. It's, it's what it is. It, I think the agents with FDLE talked to you last week about some voter fraud, voter stuff, when you weren't supposed to be voting, maybe. This shit is crazy, man. Y'all put me in jail for something I didn't know nothing about. Why would y'all let me vote if I wasn't, uh, I wasn't able to vote? The arrests in the body cam footage are from August 18th and come under the auspices of Republican Governor Ron DeSantis' recently formed Office of Election Crimes and Security. Of the 19 people arrested that day, 12 are registered Democrats and at least 13 are African-American. In the United Kingdom, the family of jailed Egyptian writer and activist Alaa Abdel Fattah has begun a sit-in in front of the British Foreign Affairs Office. Sanaa and Mona Saif are demanding the release of their brother, who's been on hunger strike in Egypt for 200 days. The U.S. has agreed to take in Al-Fatah, who also recently got his British citizenship. Shadow British Foreign Secretary David Lammy joined the protest yesterday. Supporters of Al-Fatah are ramping up pressure to release the human rights activists ahead of next month's COP27 climate summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. 
The African Commission on Human and People's Rights in Gambia has voted to adopt the Egyptian Civic Space Petition, which links COP27 to human rights and demands an end to human rights abuses. In Saudi Arabia, a U.S. citizen has received a 16-year jail sentence for writing tweets critical of the Saudi government. 72-year-old Saad Ibrahim Ahmadi is a dual citizen and was arrested in November after traveling from Florida to Riyadh to visit family. One of the tweets referenced slain Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Saad's son said his father is being held in conditions that amount to torture and has criticized the U.S. government for not doing more to free his father. The Washington Post reports at least 15 retired U.S. generals and admirals have worked as paid consultants for Saudi Arabia's Ministry of Defense since 2016. The sweeping investigation reveals hundreds of former military personnel have taken highly lucrative jobs with foreign governments accused of human rights abuses with the approval of the U.S. military. The U.S. has long sought to keep these ties hidden, but Washington Post reporters brought the matter to court, eventually obtaining 4,000 pages of documents through the Freedom of Information Act. Over 100 Haitian migrants, including pregnant people and children, were found stranded on an uninhabited island west of Puerto Rico on Tuesday. Mona Island, located midway between the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico, has become a popular drop-off point for boats of migrants departing from the Dominican Republic. Smugglers often abandon migrants there, falsely telling them they've reached the main island of Puerto Rico. Haiti is facing one of its worst crises of instability and violence as gangs continue to control a major port in Port-au-Prince, triggering critical shortages of food, water, fuel and other resources. Harsh U.S. immigration policies blocking migrants from seeking asylum in the United States have forced many to rely on smugglers and embark on extremely dangerous routes to enter the U.S. In California, the Los Angeles City Council has voted for Paul Krikorian to become the new council president following the resignation last week of disgraced former President Nuri Martinez, who was heard making racist remarks on a leak audio tape. Meanwhile, protests continue demanding the resignation of the two other council members who were caught on the recording, Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon. This is Melina Abdullah from Black Lives Matter Los Angeles speaking in front of Los Angeles City Hall. We don't have any room for blatant anti-black racists on L.A. City Council. They got to go. They got to go. And every other city council member that is meeting with them is co-conspiring with them and locking community out. They are just as guilty. To see our interview with Melina Abdullah, you can go to democracynow.org. In upstate New York, Amazon workers in Albany overwhelmingly voted against forming a union with the recently established Amazon Labor Union. The defeat comes after months of union busting from Amazon, including intimidating workers and firing union organizers and supporters. New Jersey is suing five oil and gas companies and a lobbying group for lying about the harm caused by fossil fuels and its link to catastrophic climate change. A lawsuit filed Tuesday names ExxonMobil, Shell, Chevron, BP, ConocoPhillips and the American Petroleum Institute. This is New Jersey Attorney General Matthew Platkin. They led a decades-long disinformation campaign to confuse the public about fossil fuels and climate change even though the scientific consensus was secure. They did this to avoid, specifically to avoid, a cleaner, lower carbon future. 
and to preserve their market for their commodities at the expense of the global environment and, frankly, at all of our expense. They also did this to stave off public opinion or government action that could have cut into their profits. New Jersey officials say the state is ground zero for climate change. The suit comes just days ahead of the 10th anniversary of Superstorm Sandy, which killed 38 people in New Jersey and cost an estimated 65 billion damages uh, in the U.S. The Interior Department announced it'll hold the first-ever lease sale for wind energy off the coast of California in December. The development of wind energy in the area could eventually power over one and a half million homes. Retail stores have begun selling hearing aids over the counter as the Food and Drug Administration starts rolling out a new policy allowing the sale of the hearing aids without the need for a doctor's visit or prescription. The move is aimed at making hearing aids more accessible and affordable, though over-the-counter prices still range from $200 to over 1000 and the Biden administration has started accepting applications to cancel up to $20,000 in student debt per person. Borrowers earning up to $125,000 per person and $250,000 per household are eligible for the relief. Advocates continue to demand Biden cancel all student debt. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, protesters in Haiti continue to demand the resignation of the U.S.-backed Haitian prime minister and against the deployment of international troops to Haiti. We'll speak to Gerline Joseph, not only about the crisis in Haiti, but how the U.S. is treating asylum seekers from Haiti and Venezuela. Stay with us. You can't do this by Platinum D. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we begin today's show looking at the crisis in Haiti, where protesters continue to demand the resignation of the U.S.-backed prime minister, Ariel Henry, and against the deployment of international troops to Haiti amidst a growing humanitarian crisis. A blockade of a key port in Port-au-Prince, the capital, by gangs, has led to a critical shortage of fuel, food and water for millions of people. Meanwhile, Haiti's fighting a new outbreak of cholera. On Monday, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres called for a, quote, armed action to reopen the port. It's an absolutely 
nightmarish situation for the population of Haiti, especially Port-au-Prince. I believe that we need not only to strengthen the police, strengthening it with training, with equipment, with a number of other measures, but that in the present circumstances we need an armed action to release the port and to allow for a humanitarian corridor to be established. On Monday, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, pushed for the U.N. Security Council to authorize a non-U.N. international security mission to go to Haiti. The second resolution we're working on would authorize a non-U.N. international security assistance mission to help improve the security situation and enable the flow of desperately needed humanitarian aid. But in the streets of Haiti, many protesters have condemned the United States for pushing to intervene again in Haiti. Protesters are also demanding the resignation of Ariel Henry, who has ruled since the assassination of Jovenel Moïse on July 7, 2021. This is former Haitian senator and presidential candidate Moïse Jean-Charles. Freedom. We are not in the states of the United States. We are not provinces of the United States. We are a country. We are a republic. They cannot give us orders. This time we do not need them. If Ariel Henry does not resign and the bank officials don't change their minds, we will make a revolution in the country. We're joined now by Gerline Joseph. She is co-founder and executive director of Haitian Bridge Alliance, which advocates for humanitarian assistance to Haitians and other black immigrants from the Caribbean and Africa. Today, she's joining us from Mexico City, where she's looking into the impacts of the Title 42 pandemic Trump-era policy that's been used to block at least two million migrants, including tens of thousands of Haitians, from applying for asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. The Biden administration recently expanded Title 42 to begin expelling Venezuelan nationals. Gerline Joseph, welcome back to Democracy Now! Before we move to what's happening at the border, let's talk about what's happening in Haiti right now. Um, you have the reports that chaos is engulfing the country, that it's become so total, the social fabric is so torn that the country is on the verge of collapse. And then you have the U.N. Secretary General uh, calling for military action. Can you respond to the protests and the response? Good morning, Amy. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, what we are seeing in Haiti right now is uh, extremely painful as a Haitian woman, as a Haitian-American woman, to see how the country has been dipping into this abyss. And we have been in communications with civil societies in Haiti to understand what is needed on the ground. And they are telling us they need a Haitian-led solution in order for the country to get out of where we are right now. As you mentioned, Amy, rampant violence, gang violence, political turmoil, assassination of the president, still no answer. And we are seeing people really protesting on the street for the right to sovereign uh, a solution 
to, to the issues that are happening. And they are saying no to an invasion, no to armed invasion from the international community, because every time there is the so-called help invasion that people go to Haiti result in chaos. You also mentioned the cholera pandemic that is in the rise right now, and that itself is a result of the UN being in Haiti after the earthquake. So we are seeing and hearing, and we are taking the time to understand what Haiti means right now and how we move forward. And uh, Gerlene Joseph, I wanted to ask you, uh, we keep hearing about this gang violence that is uh, is rampant throughout Haiti, but there are some in some Haitians in the U.S. and as well as other uh, radicals and socialists here in this country who say that all these gangs are not alike. Uh, that the, uh, for instance, that the FRG9, the revolutionary forces of the G9 family led by Jimmy Cherize, are much more political, and they're the ones that are dealing with this uh, this uh, blockade of the port. Whereas uh, other gangs like the GPEP are, are actually part of uh, work with the Ariel Henry govern government and the police, and the United States seems to be more focused on FRG9. Could you talk about whether there are differences between these gangs and and uh, what's your sense of uh, how how the narrative is being shaped here in the U.S.? Absolutely. One thing I want to clarify is the fact that this gang pandemic, this great gang phenomenon, is, is, is not native to Haiti. It's imported to Haiti. Uh, uh, we are not used to this type of violence when it comes to gang. This is a new uh, 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 system that is being put in place or that has been put in place to destabilize the country. Um, I do not know who is supporting which gang. I do not know which activities are being supporting either by outside sources or, or, or people within the government. But what we we are seeing right now is that people are fearful. We are seeing entire neighborhood being displaced in Martissant, in Quadebouquet, in Petronville, where we never had any violence before that we are seeing all places in the country dealing with gang violence. And again, it, it is imperative that we understand the narrative that's being shared is that Haiti has never had to deal with this level of gang violence. This is new. This is backed by many different other outside sources. And we must understand that we have to come to, an, to, to, to a resolve where, where we read the country of violence so people don't have to flee. Right now, we are seeing people fleeing by boat, either going to Puerto Rico, to the Bahamas, to Miami, and they are dying on, on the way here. We are seeing people fleeing from Haiti, making their way to the border in Mexico because they can't not be at home. We are seeing the political turmoil, the gang violence that are being financed or supported by whomever that are creating a space where people cannot survive. That is why when we speak to civil societies in Haiti, we understand that in order for us to move forward, there must be sustainability. There must be proper school. There must be proper hospital. There must be the agriculture needs to be revived in order for people to be able to be safe at home and not have to flee. Can you talk about the Montana Accords, what they are, and, and the group that uh, 
that developed them following the assassination of uh, uh, Haiti's former president in 2021? I am not an expert of the Montana Accord, but what we understand is that over 500 groups, civil societies, political groups have come together to come up with a solution that is led by Haitians to be able to find a way moving forward. What we understand from the Montana Accord, it is the only alternative we have right now to really getting ourselves out of the political turmoil, possibly having a, a safe transition where then we can move to a better space in Haiti. So again, I am not an expert in the Montana Accord, but from understanding and speaking with many different who, uh, uh, groups and people who are involved, it seems to be a good alternative in order to move forward. But what we are seeing is that there's no real engagement between the Montana Accord uh, 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 parties, the international communities, people who wants to support Haiti and wants to be able to 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 get away out of the um of the issues we are dealing right now. So we are calling on the international community, on the U.S. and Canada, to not, to not side with, one, uh, uh, with, the, with the political people in power, but to make sure that they are including the civil societies, the people of Haiti, who are able to, to take their future in hand and see how we can work together. At this point, we believe that Haiti needs support, Haiti needs to be stabilized. Haiti needs to have sustainable uh, uh, ecosystem uh, so that people can live, people can prosper, not just survive, but thrive. So you're in Mexico City looking at migrants, and I wanted to turn to the issue of Haitian migrants and also the Biden administration's new policy on Venezuelan asylum seekers. All Venezuelans who arrive at the U.S.-Mexico border will now be turned away under Title 42, a Trump-era pandemic policy that's been used to block at least 2 million migrants from applying for asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. Meanwhile, the Biden administration announced it's going to allow 24,000 Venezuelans to enter the country by air if they have a financial sponsor in the United States, of course, which many don't. Applicants must first apply online. The program similar to one set up for Ukrainians. Um, this is Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas speaking last week in D.C. To reduce the number of people arriving at our southwest border irregularly and create a more orderly and safe and humane process for people fleeing the humanitarian and economic crisis in Venezuela. Those who attempt to cross the southern border of the United States illegally will be returned. Those who follow the lawful process we announced yesterday will have the opportunity to travel safely to the United States and become eligible to work here. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Tony Blinken said last week the Biden administration has no plans to reduce sanctions on Venezuela. Some studies estimate the sanctions have killed tens of thousands of people in Venezuela. A few years ago, it was Mike Pompeo under Trump um, who offered a pathway to lift the sanctions predicated on regime change um, in Venezuela and replacing the president with Juan Guaido. How much of this situation can you attribute to U.S. policy against Venezuela? And then what is happening with this massive uh, deportation of Venezuelans? And also talk about Haitians being turned back. 
Uh, thank you uh, so much, Amy. Again, I, I am not an expert in Venezuelan politics, but what I can tell you is that uh, the 24,000 Venezuelans who have been announced by the uh, by Secretary Mayorkas and the Biden administration is a piecemeal. Because what we are seeing, we are seeing hundreds of thousands of people still fleeing Venezuela. We are seeing uh, expulsion, deportation of at least 1,000 Venezuelans a day from the United States back to, to Mexico. And we are seeing that, that the, the piecemeal that is being offered to the Venezuelan population is also being used as a deterrent factor for people who have already been on the, on, on the road uh, uh, to seek for protection, people who are still traversing the Darien, people who are here in Mexico, who do not have the ability or the, the privilege to fly from Venezuela to the United States. I think when we are looking into how we are welcoming people, we must center compassion, not just using uh, uh, carrots in a stick just to uh, deter people, but really provide wholesome protection for folks. So I am here in Mexico City looking into how it is affecting, impacting uh, the, the migrant population, people in mobility, people in displacement, People who are searching for asylum and protection, whether they are from Venezuela, whether they are from Ukraine or from Haiti, they must all welcome with dignity. And what we are seeing happening to the Venezuelan uh, community is unacceptable. Although we welcome the idea of providing, uh, uh, you know, the protection for the 24,000, but what will happen with the hundreds of others who are already at the U.S.-Mexico border? What will happen to the, to the Haitians who are still stuck at the U.S.-Mexico border because of Title 42? It is unacceptable today for the, for, for the government to try to expand Title 42 enforcing people to continue to die. Amy, as I'm speaking to you right now, we are in the middle of doing three funerals in Tijuana. Three Haitians have been have died in Tijuana this past week alone, including a two-year-old girl, a man who was killed, and another one who was who, who died due to lack of medical care. So what we are seeing is that the use of Title 42 continues to destroy lives, and there is no reason that the U.S. government under President Biden should continue to use Title 42 as a way to deter and definitely being uh, uh, um, able to see death at, at the U.S.-Mexico border. So we must continue to push. We must continue to hold uh, everyone accountable as we move forward to understand that support protection must be provided for the Venezuelan. Support and protection must be provided for the Haitians the same way we are welcoming and continue to support the Ukrainians. The reality and, is... Gerlene. If I can ask you, we just have a, a few more minutes. I wanted to ask you about the role of the Mexican government uh, in cooperating with the Biden administration in terms of uh, uh, people being sent uh, uh, back to Mexico. Uh, and also, what do you say to these uh, local leaders around the United States, even in places like New York City, that are now being uh, uh, inundated with the asylum seekers that are being 
shipped by bus from Texas and and Florida uh, to uh, northern cities and northern states, the sheer numbers of people that they're suddenly having to deal with. Um, I don't think we are being inundated by 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 asylum seekers. I believe that we did not prepare uh, uh, intentionally or unintentionally to actually receive people in in mobility, people in need of protection. As a country, the same way we did for the Ukrainians, we did not have anyone on the news complaining about Ukrainians coming to New York or to other other cities. They were received and welcomed and placed into sponsorship program and supported full, full on. So I don't believe we are being inundated. I believe that we need to better be, be better prepared to receive people and not allow the false narrative that we are in the middle of a crisis in order for to deter uh, 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 cities such as Chicago or New York or uh, states like Massachusetts to receive people. Uh, we applaud the states and the cities who are receiving people, but we know that the federal government can provide the support needed to welcome those people just that we have done for the Ukrainians. And we still have yet to see any welcoming program for the Haitians. We still have yet to see any meaningful change within the immigration uh, system to be able to address those issues. We are seeing a response to false narrative. We are seeing a, 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 a system that is being built to, to deter people. We are seeing a, 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 a narrative that is being created against immigrants. That's what we are seeing right now. And we are calling on accountability for all people who are a part of this mis, uh, misleading um, uh, information. And we, we really are here. We, we are in communications with many organizations in New York, in Chicago, in D.C., who are willing and able to support people arriving. Eileen, Joseph, and you want to... Uh, Juan, go ahead. Oh, no. And Mexico's role. I asked you about Mexico's role as well. Uh, yes, Juan. The, the thing is, we, we understand that the, the U.S.-Mexico summit uh, happened last week in, 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 in San Diego. Uh, we were not privy of the decisions or how the communications went. But as a result, we see Mexico is receiving folks. So we just um, are here and um, uh, pleading and asking the Mexican government to do the right thing by the migrants and people in displaced people in mobility. Gerline Joseph, we want to thank you for being with us, co-founder and executive director of Haitian Bridge Alliance, today joining us from Mexico City in Mexico. Next up, we speak with Congress member Cori Bush about her new memoir, The Forerunner, a story of pain and perseverance in America. Stay with us. You are, you are the
Center of My Joy by Richard Smallwood. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. On Tuesday, President Biden vowed to enshrine access to abortion into law if Democrats can expand their narrow majorities in Congress in the upcoming midterm, now less than three weeks away. Here's the promise I make to you and the American people. The first bill that I will send to the Congress will be to codify Roe v. Wade. And when Congress passes it, I'll sign it in January, 50 years after Roe was first decided the law of the land. President Biden spoke at a Democratic National Committee event, as many Democratic candidates hope to harness voter outrage over the Supreme Court's ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson last year that struck down the constitutional right to an abortion after almost 50 years and left it up to the states. Abortion rights were a key issue at Tuesday night's debate in Florida between Republican Senator Marco Rubio and his Democratic challenger, Congressmember Val Demings. I'm 100 percent pro-life. That said, every bill I've ever sponsored on abortion, every bill I've ever voted for, has exceptions. Senator, how gullible do you really think Florida voters are? Number one, you have been clear that you support no exceptions, even including rape and incest. For more, we spend the rest of the hour with Congressmember Cori Bush. She herself faces re-election this November as a first-term Democrat in Missouri, where abortion was banned after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June. She just wrapped up a Row the Vote reproductive freedom tour across her state and was one of 17 Congress members arrested in a pro-abortion rights protest outside the Supreme Court in July. She first publicly discussed her own abortions a witness at a, as a witness at a congressional hearing last year and has featured her story in campaign ads like this one. At 17, I was raped and became pregnant. That's the start of my abortion story. Millions more have their own. Let me be clear. Forced pregnancy is a crime against humanity. When an extremist court dictates what we can do with our bodies, that's violence. But together, St. Louis, we're powerful. Together, we'll reclaim our rights. We will not let up. We will not yield until abortion is legal everywhere and everyone has reproductive freedom. Congressmember Cori Bush has just published her memoir. It's called The Forerunner, a story of pain and perseverance in America. She's joining us today to discuss it as she talks about her experiences with abortion, her work as a community activist. She was a registered nurse, an ordained pastor. She was unhoused and so much more. Congressmember Bush, welcome back to Democracy Now! Your book is riveting. Um, why don't we start by you talking about abortion? You openly talk about it in Congress, but you're not just talking about one. You're talking about having had several abortions, and you take on a very sensitive issue. It's the issue of choice, when you have a choice to have an abortion or not. And you can talk about what happened in your life. Yeah. You know, the, the decision— should belong to the person who has to walk out that journey. Um, it shouldn't be our government making that decision for anyone. And I look at it the same as, you know, you choose whether to go to uh, a 
provider. If you are a diabetic, you make the choice. Do I want to go to that to this particular doctor or that one? You know, for those who are insured and for those who are, are underinsured or uninsured, you know, there there is a different uh, choice that that they have to make. Well, when we're talking about our physical body, we're talking about our mental health. That should re- that should be the sole decision of the person that walks that out. Um, so I've been upfront and very. Um, you know, very public about uh, the two abortions that I've had. And, um, you know, the first one being, you know, very difficult. I didn't I didn't even understand what was happening at the time. I didn't understand, you know, how I got pregnant. Um, Even when I I just the whole thing, I just was not prepared for. Um, But being able to at 17 go to this book at the, you know, at that time, we still had the big fat yellow pages. I remember I went to that to the yellow pages and went to the name of a clinic that I had heard my friends talk about. I opened the yellow pages. There was the phone number. I called, made an appointment. Um, And it was just that simple to be able to um, to get to be on the road to receiving services. It was just like calling to say calling my dentist to say I needed, you know, I I had a toothache. I, um, you know, but I think about what happens when uh, the services that we need for our bodies, if you take those services away right now, we're fighting. We've been fighting for such a long time just to make sure that each and every person has access and actual health care. We've been fighting for a long time to make sure that there was reproductive justice, not just reproductive freedom. And now we that has been rolled back to where our rights have, are being stripped away. If you don't want an abortion, don't have one. But to tell but to say that no one in this country should have that type of access is that that to me. Um, to strip away those rights should not be the job of the government. And, you know, prior to uh, Roe v. Wade being law, we know that one of the like major causes of death for black women in this country was the sepsis that went along with unsafe that came from unsafe abortions. Why do we want to go back there when we know that there are so many disparities in black in um, black maternal health disparities? Um, in, uh, you know, just across the board, we haven't fixed those problems. We can't go backwards. And Congress member, I wanted to ask you, you begin your book with an ode to your beloved hometown, St. Louis, Missouri. You write, quote, despite the richness of, of culture, the truth is that we live in a lethal environment in St. Louis and we're dying. And you go on to say, quote, the legacies of slavery and the jury se- segregation affect every aspect of society here. Could you elaborate? Sure. I mean, St. Louis, we've been. Uh, you know, we're known for leading um, in homicides across the country per capita, you know, year after year. We're known for um, even uh, leading in the murder of children. We are known for leading in uh, police murder uh, year after year. It, so we live in this lethal environment, but also environmental justice is something that we have not like we're we have not achieved environmental justice. Um, just um, right now, we have this issue in our community. Uh, we've been uh, fighting this battle for years to clean up um, a, a cold water creek and Westlake landfill. We have a school that's been in the news 
um, over the past couple of days at elementary school where um, there are where a study just came out saying that there are uh, there's radioactive um, waste, uh, you know, within the school, you know, and just yesterday the school board had to make the decision. The school board made the decision to close the school and go virtual. We're talking we're talking about an environment where um, people should be able to live and thrive and grow. But we're fighting just to survive. And as much as I love my community, I love St. Louis. You know, we have to talk about those things and address them. We have to address poverty head on. We have to, you know, I think about how we drive up and down the streets of St. Louis. And there are there are certain areas where um, where the auction blocks used to be. When, we, when you bring up you brought up slavery, a lot of people don't know that Missouri was a slave state, even though we are not the South, we are the Midwest. We were still a slave state. And uh, I think about the case of Dred Scott um, and Dred and Harriet Scott. I think about um, how that we still feel we, we are still up under like that 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 cloud of the segregation, that cloud of slavery um, that was that uh, divided this state um, long ago. And we have not we we've, we just haven't gotten to the point to where there is true equity and equality in this state or in the country. Your book also talks about your family history. Your paternal great grandparents came to St. Louis from Mississippi as part of the Great Migration. And you talk a lot about your father, Errol Bush, who was a giant in your life. Can you talk about him and what he taught you? Yeah. So my dad, um, he's very much so uh, like involved in making sure that we understand our family history, that we know who we are. Uh, he started that when we were kids. He made sure that I knew um, that, you know, I am enough, that my black is beautiful. It was a, you know, we went through a lot Um uh, you know, like colorism, you know, is a real thing. But my father made sure colorism and racism are real things. My father made sure that we understood that, you know, the safety that you have here inside this home is different once you walk outside of these doors. So he built us up, you know, to know that, you know, you can go as far as you want to go. You can have all the things that you want to have. It's up to you if you allow other people to stop you. Um, and so he made sure we understood like responsibility and leadership, accountability. That was his mantra every single morning before we walked out of the doors um, to go to school. My dad has been in politics for most of my life, so more more than 30 years. Uh, but I remember as a child, when he first got into politics, he started with the PTA and then moved on to to um, like the the city council and uh, and then became a mayor. Uh, I just remember that, you know, I worked on every part of my dad's campaigns uh, year after year. He would have to run every two years. And I mean, we did it all. I was the, <laughs> I just did it all. Didn't know what I was doing, but I was there to support my dad. And looking back, those were seeds being sown that um, I didn't know that I need I would need, you know, later on in life. And now it's funny because I was at all of my dad's functions and supporting him, holding the signs, wearing the shirts, doing all the stuff. And now my dad is doing that exact same thing for me. You cannot stop my dad from wearing his purple Cory Bush for Congress T-shirt and, you know, and, and making sure everybody knows vote for my daughter. 
Can you talk about um, your protests to stop evictions? You yourself were unhoused with your two beloved children. You're a registered nurse. You came out of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, uh, dealing with the terrible police killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson. Um, talk about how that history informed your strategies and how you decided that though your father was in electoral politics, that you were going to go from movement to electoral politics. And do you see a difference? <laughs> yeah. So that was not a decision that first it didn't come easy. I had I never had a desire to be a politician, never wanted to be an elected official. It was not at all a dream of mine. I wanted to be a nurse. That's what I saw. That's what I wanted to be. And uh, especially because I worked so closely with my dad and I would watch how my dad would say something. And then in the media, like in, in a newspaper article, it, they would print something that was not what my dad said or people would attack him for things that he didn't do. And I just remember like. Just I would ask him, like, why do you do this? Like, why do you continue to help people and do all of these things and, you know, give all of your time uh, and and then you get all of these attacks and, and all of this criticism back? And I didn't understand it then. Um, but uh, it was through the protest, through more than 400 days of protest during the Ferguson uprising, us being out there on the streets, demanding what we thought was justice demand. Now I consider justice being alive, not just not um, someone going, not a police officer or anyone else going to jail. Um, that's account of more accountability. I, that's not justice to me in my eyes. But um, but, you know, we were out there just, you know, doing what we could to not only uh, bring a, bring accountability, but to also be able to save other lives. So when someone approached me and I speak and I, I write about it in the book, someone approached me, another activist um, said, we need you to run for U.S. Senate. Like, will you run for U.S. Senate? I'm like, no. Like, why would I do that after 400 days of protest? Now, I do remember being out there, though, looking for our our elected officials, looking for more of them, I'll say, to be out there on the ground, to stand with us, because we weren't there to just to piss people off and to uh, to block traffic and and, and to, to be seen. Like, that's not why we were out there. We were out there because for me, I didn't want my son to be the next hashtag. I didn't want my daughter to be the next hashtag. And I didn't do everything in my power to, to stop it. If throwing my voice, lending my voice, my hands, my feet to the to the moment was uh, was something that I could do, I needed to do everything that I could. And but when someone asked me to run initially, you know, in the beginning, I said, no, like, why would I do that? But then the more I thought about it and I thought about all the times when I felt like I was just shouting at the wind, when I felt like I was throwing pebbles at the ocean and no one was there. I thought about, hey, if you put someone in the space to be able to hit the ball, like thinking about the St. Louis Cardinals, it was like, you know, you have this, you got a picture throwing these, throwing these balls. Who's there to, to hit the home run, you know? Um, and so I said, yes, that, but that it was not easy because the other part of that was, oh, you're just a nurse. Oh, you you don't come from money. Oh, you you don't you're not an attorney. Do you realize you're an activist from Ferguson? Like you're you know, people would call me a terrorist like that was you know, that's what people saw. Or, oh, your skin is too dark. Like you realize that, you know, black women can't run for this seat. You know, your hair is unprofessional. Your hips are too big. Your lips are too big. Like I went through all of those things um, trying to run for office in this state.
And Congress member, in your book, you talk about your early experiences with uh, police uh, as a teenager. Uh, and you write, quote, my friends and I were being initiated into the attacks that came to shape our teenage years and beyond. You were talking about being sexually uh, harassed by a police officer. Could you talk about that? Yeah. You know, I, um, not knowing, uh, like waking up one day and your body looks different. Um, you put on the same clothes and they don't fit you the same way. Uh, you know, I didn't, it, it got to the point to where it was like, you know, how do I dress? Like, am I doing, am I doing something wrong? Because now all of a sudden I have all of these men, these grown men, like making these cat calls at me. And then this one particular day, uh, this police officer, you know, just, um, you know, I'm walking down the street. I walked a lot because that was in it. That was just how I got around and just, I'm walking down the street and this police officer pulls up in the car next to me and I kept walking, but I didn't think anything, you know, that there would be a problem because, you know, I knew most of the police officers or at least, you know, we, they knew who we were and we were taught that those police officers were safe. Like, you know, so I had no, I just assumed that this person was safe, but he was riding alongside me and I kept walking and, you know, and I just, uh, I just remember as he kept talking to me and when I finally looked in the car, I noticed, you know, he was make have, he had this hand gesture going. And when I finally looked, because I had never experienced that before, I had never seen, uh, you know, I had only changed kids diapers, you know, so I had never seen, you know, a grown man's penis before. And that was, it was, and I had never seen someone masturbating right in front of me. I was, I was a kid. Um, and so I internalized that I didn't even go home and tell my, my dad because I felt like I was wrong. You know, I was able to get away from that person, but I felt like I did that. Like I, it was something that I did wrong. It was something, it was, maybe it was the way that I was walking, you know, um, or maybe this shirt was too tight or, or, you know, or my skirt should have been, you know, should have been looser. Like I, I felt like I was the problem. So I didn't want to tell my dad about that because the police officer, he couldn't have been wrong. And if he was how do I tell my dad that as someone who really supports them, at least locally anyway? And you also talk about the just horrifying moment where a faith leader rapes you. You have chosen to go public with these stories. You describe them in graphic detail as a lesson. And can you talk about what happened next? I mean, you were a nurse. You were raped in your nurse's uniform. Yes, yes. Um, so in, in the book, I write about some other, uh, some prior, uh, sexual assaults and I, for 20 years, I held on to those thinking, you know what? It was because my shirt was too short or it was because my, my shorts were too short or, you know, I was at this club or like it was something, there was something that I did to make this person think that that's what I wanted. And, um, and then, but fast forward 40, 20 years later, I'm 40 years old, had just just lost my primary, my very first primary running for U.S. Senate and uh, was trying to was grieving that loss. And uh, to I was just going to um, we got the news that a friend of ours, a pro, my protest brother, had been killed that morning. Um, so the our protest family, we were they were out at the site where his body was found, burned, shot in, in a car. And 
Um, I was grieving that at that during all day long and went to go see this home because I knew I just needed to move. I was having so many problems where I where I lived. I I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel safe having my children in that home um, because of all of the surveillance, all of the attacks, all of just all that was happening. And so I went to see this home of someone who. I thought that I knew uh, they just said, hey, come, you can come see. They put it out on social media, on Facebook. Come out and see, you know, if you want to uh, see the home, you know, uh, that I have for rent. I went, just thought I was going to, you know, uh, see this house that he had for rent. I went straight from work. I had on a white uh, my, my uniform, it was the uniform, the white scrub top with the, the brown, the blue, I'm sorry, scrub pants. And I had on some boots, um, some like Nike boots. Um and I wasn't there but minutes when he grabbed me and um, led me to the bedroom. And and I just remember him pulling my clothes down. And I'm I still it wasn't I wasn't understanding what was happening because I'm like, I know that's not what's happening. You know, I know. And then I'm, the violence started, you know, because I wasn't acting right. You know, I wasn't complying. And so then that's when the violence started. And he. And, and he had to just keep pushing me down and he was just pulling at my clothes. And, and, it, you know, I, and, and I, at that moment, I'm thinking like, what did I do this time? Like, I, what, you know, like I'm not exposed. I'm not like, I, what did I do? But you know, uh, so that was, that one hit me really, really hard and it knocked me down for several months. Um, I could not, I was hyper uh, hyper vigilant. I was suffering um, through moments of dissociation and a lot. I, I was having trouble even taking care of myself, taking care of my children. I had to have family and friends to help me because I, I could not even walk outside of my home. Like part of part of my, my therapy was to step outside of my home for five minutes, then go for 10 minutes. If it, like I was not. I was not okay after that. And the other thing is because this person was a pastor in this community, you know, and then it was something people not believing like, oh, why would a pastor do this to you? I was laying in the hospital right after it happened, laying in a hospital bed with people looking over me um, right after my rape kit, right after they did this horrific rape kit. The rape kit is not an easy thing to go through right after that. I'm laying there and I have people looking over me, looking for my bruises, people looking over me like, well, he's a pastor, though. Why would he do that? Ask him. <laughs> and yet, uh, go ahead, one. Yes, I, I wanted to ask you if if you could talk about the Michael Brown uh, killing and your involvement in the Ferguson protest. You write that your time as part of a mobile response team expanded your understanding of the public health impacts of policing and violence. And yeah, um, so uh, after when Michael Brown was killed, uh, a couple days later, um, I was back at work. Um, that was that Monday. Um, it happened on a Saturday. Uh, I was back at work that Monday and I was telling my my supervisor, like, hey, you know, we should be on the ground. Um, you know, like there are people out there need help. Maybe we could, you know, you could send some folks to just be out there on the ground. Um, I didn't think that they would send a whole van and a mobile response team, but that's what they ended up doing. And we we organized everything was out on the out on the ground. Uh, immediately set up tents. We worked with Better Family Life. We um, collaborated. And Congress member, we, we have 30 seconds. Yes. And uh, it was it was uh, 
a time when I was able to see what happens when people don't have access to true care and what also happens when uh, we uh, when everybody doesn't feel safe in their community. Well, your story is a truly remarkable one. You became the first African-American woman to represent Missouri in Congress. And you've written about it in this incredibly brave book, The Forerunner, a story of pain and perseverance in America. Corey Bush, our guest. We thank you so much for being with us. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a video news production fellow and a people and culture manager. Learn more at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dean Augusta, Messiah Rhodes. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Stay safe.